Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. And today, uh, we we need to we need to catch our breath. I think um, this is one of those. I can't believe I have a podcast show to talk about basketball because there was a lot of basketball over the weekend. Kevin Durant didn't even come back. He's scheduled to come back in a couple days. hasn't hasn't played yet. For Phoenix, that was supposed to be the big marquee game on Saturday. Um, Cody, your Milwaukee Bucks have the quietest 14-game winning streak in the history of every sport. There, there's never been a sport where a team has had a 14-game winning streak. And I haven't heard many people, if anyone, talk about it. It doesn't seem to be a thing. I myself don't know if it's a thing. It's a very strange winning streak. Usually when you get a 14-game winning streak, it's like we are taking names and things are happening. And the Bucks kind of just you, you like you notice like, oh, they won by three points against a shorthanded Phoenix team. Uh, they do this every night. That wasn't even the most exciting game of the weekend. What what are people talking about right now? Because you said no one's talking about it. Is there anything else that people are like constantly talking about? Because I don't even know what the chatter is about. It still feels like people are are busy complaining about All Star Weekend instead of of talking about something else in the league. Like no, we've moved past that now. If you I get, don't think we have. Well, the, what I've learned this week is if you if you are able to block a shot late in a game against another good player, you are the MVP. <laughs> <laughs> or if you have a good game against that player, that is just going to be the number, like the top line of your resume when the MVP votes. Oh, on. that's a slam dunk. That's a, actually it's a logical uh, axiom of the universe that if you outplay another player in a game, you're the you're the MVP. Absolutely, yeah. I think yeah. that's what people are talking about. I think so. Yeah, actually, it, it does feel like the MVP chatter has has fired back up again. Uh, but then, man, this weekend, Ben, there were. How many games were like legitimately really like there were some the 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 scorcher the one seventy to one thousand no. what, what happened to that game six to one seventy five that's absurd yeah. do you want to talk about Clippers Kings at all I do we're gonna to get to that in a second I do want to talk about it quite a bit I've been making a video on that game for four days in a row <laughs> I think I could make a documentary about that game that was that was one of the most amazing regular season games ever we'll get to that in a wow. second um another big game over the week i think we just got national tv games now that the football season is in. we got sunday night espn games i don't know we just have a potpourri of of beautiful basketball games all the time the lakers they went into dallas uh it, cody can i say that jared vanderbilt led lakers am i allowed to say that listen ben Damian Lillard dropped 71 last night. The only player I want to talk about today is Jared Vanderbilt. That, the performance, and listen, listen, I know everyone's going to be like, he's been doing this all year with Utah, now you're going to talk. No, listen, we were singing his praises when he played for Minnesota last year, but the performance yesterday, the, the, Oh, he had this steal, Ben. I think I sent it to you. There was like a handoff action. He leaps in between them, steals it, and then saves it over his shoulder like he's Larry Bird. Full court save for a layup. It's honestly GOAT-level stuff right there. Jared Vanderbilt is just, he's just the greatest, Ben. Damian Lillard scored 71 points in 22 <laughs> minutes. Is that right? 
so, how, something like how that. How many minutes did he? I think he played 38 minutes or something. Yeah, it was not 40. He did not hit 40. Yeah. Minutes. Now at the same, so so on one hand you have this incredible performance of points per minute. On the other hand, it's against the Houston Rockets. So if you prorate that, uh, if you go to your local uh, currency exchange booth, they will knock that down <laughs> from 71 points back down to a a smaller number. Uh, it is it is not a one to one value. When you play Houston, I haven't even been able to catch up on that game. There's so many things happening, but it does feel like Cody and and this will get us into the incredible Clippers Kings game at some point. Feels like defenses need help, man. It, this mm-hmm. this this is just ridiculous. Do you think when you say that, do you sort of mean it in the same way when we were talking about the sub all stars when you were when you're scaling back a little bit the value that you're giving to drop bigs? Is that sort of tied into what you mean here? Well, what do you mean specifically? with because the court is so stretched and there's so much skill in the game now yeah one of our conversations during the sub all-star episode was that the the value that you usually gave to to you know the the brooke lopez's or the Jarrett allen's of the world maybe the rudy gobert's these kingpin rim protectors that you don't maybe see them you don't value them quite as much as you have in past seasons do you think that's part of what's uh what's going into what you're saying about defense well, I mean, I don't know how you stop the offenses. That's what I mean. I, I don't know how you stop them. Um, and I think a lot of things have happened over the years. If we could hop in our little DeLorean here and, and jump back in time about two decades, the league was really plotting and slow and full of big, strong, like like girth and strength and muscle became valued at the end of the 90s into the early 2000s. The game was very physical. We talked about this when we did our really fun uh, conference finals MVP series last summer, and we got to those Pistons, you know, like the Pistons-Pacers 2004 Eastern Conference Final, all the physicality they allowed away from the ball. And so this was a period in time where defenses were kind of winning to the to the detriment of the fans it was a slog you know 68 to 65 kind of playoff games and the efficiency was down as well and so because it was a big physical giant game with a lot of strength and power versus quickness speed and agility you had less efficiency you had less shooting on the court potentially less skill on the court in terms of ball handling playmaking and whatnot um and then in addition to that, it was slow. So your pace was down. So you had this combination of like low efficiency and low pace. And that's how you get 75 to 72 as your average score in a playoff series. That's how you get these games. Uh, it always seems to come up with me with Kevin Garnett conversations because that's when he peaked. He peaked in 2003 and 2004. And then people go back and they look at the box score and they're like, is Jimmy Butler better than Kevin Garnett? Because I noticed Kevin Garnett only scored like 27 points in this game. It's like, yeah, he scored 27 points and the Timberwolves scored 75. <laughs> so it's like a 40 burger today. Um, oh, and so all this is to say, like building up to why I think defenses need help today the league started putting in rules and trying to incentivize more offense. Um, you know, freedom of movement, don't foul players away from the ball. This helped the seven seconds or less pace and space suns. Um, all this kind of stuff where we have more speed in the game, we have more agility in the game. 
And then over the years, as I've chronicled before, I have a 30 minute video on the evolution of the rules on, on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel. They've been more liberal with things like ball handling, where you can um, carry it and, and take three steps and you get a gather step and you can get a gather step and three steps and a carry. And you can, you can basically pause your dribble. Uh, the Euro step, which allows you to pause your steps and slow down and fake people out. And you couldn't really do that in the old days. One, they would just call it a, a travel. Two, you need the gather to set up the Euro steps. So before the gather, let you pick it up and then take two giant steps. You really couldn't do that. Uh, we now see players like carry it and pause it and turn it over. And that combined with moving screens, which has just gotten more and more loosely called over the years. I think something in there has gone, you know, as I said, 20 years ago, it might have made sense to try to help the offenses more. But now what's happened is all the strategy and all the skill and all the analytics and all the X's and O's and tactical brilliant, it's all caught up. It's all caught up and we still have these old rules. And so that's where in my head, I'm like, some they got to help the defense at some point or... I mean, I don't know. Do you think it's do you think it's good to have a one seventy six to one seventy? That game aside, do you think it's good to have these kinds of scoring explosions? Do you worry about the sanctity of the old numbers and all this kind of stuff? Like, what what are your thoughts before we prescribe something? Do you think there's actually an ailment here? Man, that's a really big question. My first thought is there seemed to be a period of time like after that area, after like the Pacers and Nets Pistons had their 65 point playoff battles in the 2004-2003 era. Go back and watch them. They're honestly just it's it's shocking to see them nowadays. But then it seemed like we we sort of nestled into this this comfy little offensive rating between like 105 to 108 for like a decade. Forever. Right. No, no. Yeah. For, For more than a decade. That that's the incredible thing just to interject here. Mm-hmm. That stabilized from like the very early 80s to 2017. It was like almost four decades of this very, very precise band of efficiency. It went down a little in that period that I've dubbed the dead ball period, late 90s, early 2000s. And that's that that was part of the impetus for these rule changes to say, wait, we need to help the offense in addition to being slow the offensive rating is like 102. This is ugly. It doesn't feel right. Get this puppy back to 108. How we're so finely tuned cognitively to that number, I don't know. Um, but we somehow were there for like four straight decades, which is magical. So so, so keep going. I think that's the weird thing is when you go back, say it's like 2017, 2016, and you pull some numbers, you're like, oh, wait a second. This is the exact same league-wide offensive ratings you would see in like 2006. It's really jarring to see that. And so... I don't know. I that's when I personally really got into basketball. So of course I'm going to be biased in that way, but I'm like maybe that's a better place to be. But I mean night to night I'm still enjoying watching basketball. You know, would I prefer for like a defensive player to maybe be able to have more of an impact, maybe have a guy that could be a an MVP caliber player based mostly off their defense? I think that would be pretty cool, but I don't know. The NBA is pretty fun. Yeah, I do think it's impossible at times to actually play defense. But my question back to you then, Ben, is like, what can we actually do about it? Because I think once you allow things to happen, I think it's very hard to take that away. Right. And so is there an element of like, I I don't foresee them actually taking away or making dribbling rules more strict or anything or like making screening rules more strict or something like that. So what can the NBA actually do to to cool it off a little bit and maybe bring it down to, let's just say, even like a 110-ish range for league-wide offensive rating. 
Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Well, before I answer that, I think where my mind has been on this issue, you know, Mitchell's got 71 points. Now, he did it in this crazy fashion against the Knicks, mostly coming in the second half. Um, Dame Lillard has 71 points against the Rockets. The league-wide offensive rating the last month is 116, which is just, you know, like I said, if you tracked it for 40 years, it's like 105, 107, 106, 108, 105, 107, 106, 108. And then all of a sudden, the last couple seasons, this has all happened in the last few seasons, We've gone 110, 112, 113. The the league-wide offensive efficiency for the entire year, forget last month, is 115. So we are at the we're at the place where just about five years ago, you were talking about the best offenses ever. And now you're talking about an average offense. And so for me, I think the 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 kind of place I'm settling into is if tactical advantages like putting more shooters out there, the crazy three-point shooting, the skill we see from big men, some of these X's and O's concepts we've talked about in the last few seasons, movement, shooting, multiple guys sprinting around into screens, faking the screen, ghosting, peeling off and veering in the corner. The defense has to triple switch and scram. If the offense wins that tactical rap battle, as Cody was, Cody started bobbing his head as I was uh, diagramming that imaginary play, and it and it settles us at like, 119 points per 100 possessions. I think that's fair. I think it will be explosive and exciting for fans as long as there are still plays where defensive players can make great defensive plays. And I don't just mean like a block or a steal. I mean, it's late in the game. Some action fizzles out and a defender is on an island and he can absolutely lock someone down. I think that makes fans excited. Or it's a high-level game. You're playing a team like the Celtics. They have multiple big bodies and rim protectors on the paint. And you are a team that tries to get in the paint and drive. And they swallow you with their size. They come over. They're vertical. They're legal. There's contact. But it allows the defenders to guard their space. I think fans would be excited about that, even if the final score was like 136 to 125. That's kind of that's kind of where my head is at. Yeah. I, I like that. I, I like that for sure. Because I think defensively, and I think defense is an interesting conversation once we get to the Clippers Kings. But another thing that's part of it is just like the baseline skill of offensive players in this league right now. It's nuts. It's unreal. Like we talked about it before where we kind of, you know, one of our superlatives that I put out there was like the best non-shooting shooting guard in the league. And our point with that was like, there are basically no shooting guards left in the NBA that can't shoot the ball. And that sounds like a moxymoron. Like you can't be like, oh, of course, that's like, it's in the name. Of course you need to be shooting. But go back to like 2005. There's plenty of guards, like Eric Snow, like starting next to LeBron James. Like that's just a guy that can't space the floor. And he wasn't alone, right? There were plenty of guards like that. Even Brevin Knight, right? These guards that could kind of like move the ball around, could dribble. They like were floor generals, but they couldn't really space the floor. I popped into like the Bucks game yesterday for the hottest of seconds, right? I watched for a few minutes. And in this like short amount of time, Giannis is out. 
I see Grayson Allen handling the ball. Bobby Portis is at the top, right? And Bobby Portis and Grayson Allen are doing this two-man game where Allen is giving the ball to Portis and Allen is like trying to run some routes, loses man, gets the ball back, bursts into the paint, and then like skips a one-handed skip pass to the weak corner. And I'm like, this is Grayson Allen doing this. Like if someone sent a clip of someone in like 1994 doing it, it'd be like, oh my God, this is the greatest passer of the 90s. It's, it's incredible how good every single player, every single rotation, player on a good team is in the NBA and I think that contributes to a high degree to what we're talking about yeah and I'm not sure some of those dribbling rules can be curtailed to your point I don't know if you can ever put that kind of genie back in the bottle and I also not just making this latest video I'm making but doing all the historical work I've done with with tape assessment I'm not sure fans have fully or broadcasters or anyone is like fully internalized how much the dribbling rules let you do the stuff you just described. Because if you had to worry about keeping your hand under the ball or kind of palming the ball and letting it sit up, or most importantly, pausing the dribble, that all that hang dribble, hesitation stuff, all these hezzy moves, they all were illegal for decades. So that skip pass that you're talking about that now the backup point guard of the Milwaukee Bucks has, like throw it into the corner... That, from a skill perspective and even from a strategy perspective, might not really be an option for most players in the league if they didn't expand those dribbling rules. Now that they're out of the box, uh, it's pretty beautiful and it's pretty exciting. And, and I don't know if it's something that is in, in the interest of anyone to put back in the box. So maybe to answer your question, the things I'm really thinking about are... Let's not let the dribbling rules go further. Like let's 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 stop it with the ridiculous three and four and five step plays. This this is absurd. Um, we don't have to have guys like totally carry it. The the Jordan Poole, John Morant. Like maybe we could just try to put a line on it for a couple decades and see if we could stop it. But that's only a small part of it for me. I think the league, without sort of offending anyone's sensibilities, could be a little crisper on defining moving screens and well maybe calling moving screens because i actually think they've tried to be more clinical with the definition in the rule book but i think calling moving screens and then the last thing that i personally really want to see and i i don't want to speak for a lot of fans here because i did this is definitely me coming up in an era where more physicality was allowed but for my eye cody the one that's always killed me is they, they let the offensive players initiate more and more contact as the 2000s and 2010s rolled around. And that's the one that I think offends certain fans. Maybe it's just from older eras, but it's like you got to let guys slide and move their feet and have some level of contact. And I think that's the one they could help provide a little bit more equilibrium where it's like if you're incredibly skilled, if you're an absurd shooter, if your tactics and X's and O's are beautiful game and unstoppable and Golden State, Sacramento and flying around, great. Get 120 offensive rating, I tip my cap to you. But when it's like clear out, I'm not going to say anyone's name that has a really, really long name that many people butcher. But if it's like clear out, you know, everyone go stand in the corner, create as much space as possible. And then I'm going to run over you like, like I am, you know, Walter Payton or something. Jerome Bettis. I need, I don't know any current American football players. Sorry. Um, basically I'm going to truck you 
And then the onus is going to be on the official to call that. And it's called like a defensive foul, like 70, 60% of the time, 70% of the time. I don't know. We have a pretty big inventory internally on the thinking basketball team of sharing these plays. It would be interesting to see how many have been called offense and defense. I think that's the one that it's like, we can help the, we can help the defense return to some normalcy uh, on that style of play. The Euro step for the offensive player is akin to the star in Mario Kart. It's a cheat code. Like, as soon as you get it, you're just invincible. Like, we, there are so many players where it's like the contact is initiated by the Euro stepper's elbow, and it's called a, uh, a defensive foul. Defensive or their foul. head. Yeah, yeah, they like headbutt the person. Defensive foul. Like, every time. I, I, we might have to get Monty McCutcheon on the show to discuss this one point, which, which between him and me could be like 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> I asked him about this. I can't remember if it was on air for our thinking NBA Twitter spaces collaboration. We do, if it was before or after, I can't remember. But one of the things he said goes back to being strict about definitions is he, he said, like, of course you don't have to be set to take an offensive foul, but when you're sliding your feet, uh, you can't have your feet in the air. You need your feet to be on the ground. So you don't have to like beat someone to the spot and be set. But if you're sliding, we don't want that extra step of your leg and hip cutting off the penetrator. That means he, he the offensive player claim, claim that space first. The problem is the Euro, the defender is allowed to slow down and pause things and kind of go, oh, I'm going to go this way, I'm going to go this way. And if you stand right in front of him and just slalom with him and you go left when he goes right, you know, you mirror his movements, this seems to be called a defensive foul, even when you guess perfectly. And I assume the explanation from the officials would be like, well, yeah, the player's feet are off the ground, but so are the offensive players. They're just, he's just shuffling back and forth. I don't know what you're supposed to do in that situation. And I think that's the kind of thing where... I, 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 again, I don't know. Maybe the future is 75 point games every night from players. Maybe the fans want to see a 125 point game from a player, but it feels like if we want to get back to that baseline we're at for four decades, something's got to be done in the rules to help them because the skill and the tactics, uh, they're, they're too good. They're just too good at this point. The slowdown pogo stick Euro step as well. Like like you pointed out, I was watching the Thunder recently and like SGA is just like the best at this, right? He's got so much contortion with his body and he slows himself down like bullet time so much on this step, right? So it's like this exaggerated step pauses and then another step and finishes. And I'm like, oh, wow, SGA is really good at this. But then watching a Utah game and I'm like, oh, wait a second. Jordan Clarkson just did this. That's incredible. Then I'm watching the Clippers and I'm like, Paul jo- Norman Powell? Like, who who can't do this at this point? <laughs> well, Paul Paul George is another one that I would like to see crack down on, or else in 10 years, we're going to have every player in the league dragging their feet. George has figured out how to break himself. I mean, it's an incredible <laughs> athletic move. Don't get me wrong. He, I really marvel at him, six yeah. foot nine, both in terms of his offense and defensive skills, and some of the mismatches he presents, and and some of the you know ability to guard smaller players at that size. He's really incredible. And one of the things he does is when he goes into his strides and his euro steps, he drags his back foot, which acts as like a brake and a rudder. And that is literally as as illegal as it can get. That you, you're not allowed to drag your feet across the court. You're supposed to pick them up and take steps. So I, this is what I mean. I just think they need to crack down in certain areas because I, I'm actually not sure if we're done, Cody, with the offensive explosion because the strategy from coaches 
these teams with multiple coaching staffs, multiple analytics people, multiple film people studying this stuff uh, with the internet and the way we're all connected, like, hey, who's the best Australian coach? What's he running? Who's the best NCAA coach? What's he running? Who's the best European coach? Who's the best Israeli coach? It's just going all over the world and finding these ideas and then applying them to the best players in the world in the NBA. That's what blew me away about the Kings and the Clippers game from when was that game? Friday night? A couple days ago. One, this 176 to 175 game. And uh, Cody, each team in that game scored more than three points per minute. Each team in that game scored more than three points per minute. That's 144 points in a regulation game. Would you like to guess what year the All-Star game, the All-Star game, accomplished that feat? What year was the first time the All-Star game saw both teams score three points per minute? Wow. The assumption there is that the All-Star game hasn't always done this. Um, oh, wow. Uh I'm going to say, you know, you, you got the high-powered, high-octane guys in the 80s. Can I say, like, 87? Can I guess 87? That would have been my guess sometime in the 80s. And uh, the correct answer is 2014. That's how high-scoring the Clippers no. and the Kings were the other night. They scored at a higher pace per minute than every All-Star game played until 2014. Um, what? Yes. Yes. And I would say if I had to categorize the game, if you said, like, give me the elevator pitch, we're going up 10 floors, you have 30 seconds, and I need to know about these teams. The Clippers shot the leather off the ball. They made 26 threes. That's the fourth highest total in a game in NBA history. The Kings, on the other hand, the Kings destroyed the Clippers with their X's and O's. Like, I think if you gave each team the same X's and O's, with the Clippers, the way they shot it, they would have won by 30. On the flip side, if you just had them play straight up and you had normal shooting, I think the Kings X's and O's were so good that they would have won by 20. Like all of their, we, we've, we've done content on them. Uh, we've looked at how their offense combines components of all the trends in the league in the last few years. And one of the reasons I've been making this video for like four days is I have to keep cutting out I'm like this play by the Kings. Is this, this is like a this is like a two minute description of what's happening. There's like a guy in the corner and he uh, orders an ice cream sundae as a distraction, and then he throws the ball back sixty feet to the other side of the court, but that's designed. And then they all sprint over like it's some sort of fake punt. And there's another football. Cody doesn't know anything about football, so when I say punt, he's wondering if I'm talking about sheep or something like that hurting. Um, but no, really, like the, the, the X's and O's in that game for what? A couple hundred possessions were just devastating. They were absolutely devastating. And there's two big things that jump out to me of where we are today versus even where we were five years ago. One, the shot quality on every possession is off the charts. If you go watch a game from 1995 or 2005, you get some layups, you get some open threes, you get some decent jumpers, and then you get a ton of contested jumpers. 
oh, I'm going to give it to my best player and he's going to take a contested jumper. And that's what a good player does. He takes a contested jumper. And if I can't get a contested jumper for Michael Jordan, I will get an 18-foot jumper for Luke Longley. And I will feel very good about it because Luke Longley needs his touches in the game. And today, Cody, this Kings-Clippers game, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, every possession, wide open three, layup, wide open three, layup. And then you watch the tape and you're like, well, I, it, it must be horrendous defense. And you're like, no, sometimes there's bad defense. Sometimes there's mismatches. But what's happening leads me to my second big thing. Offenses destroy the smallest mistakes that defenses make. And I just don't think we're ever going backwards at this point strategically. Um, maybe we need a league of Victor Wembenyamas or something to, to change the landscape. But right now, if you're like half a step slow getting over a screen and that creates an advantage, you better rotate perfectly. Because even if you do, best case scenario for defenses now is like, I hope I give up an open above the break three to the team's third best shooter. That's, that's what I'm hoping for the second I'm half a step behind on a screen. The efficiency of the shot quality and the ability to take advantage of these, these small errors and compound them, I think is like nothing we've ever had in the sport before. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. So you've done some work, and we've talked about the Kings quite a bit this season, right? They're one of our favorite watches, really high-octane offense and whatever else. Uh, and I know you're going to go into it a lot more detail in this video that you're going to come out. Uh, but what sorts of, like, you, you say that their X's and O's were really fantastic. What is there anything that looks different from earlier in the season? Like, are they sure throwing out some new wrinkles where you're like, oh, wow, I don't remember the, the Kings doing this last time I scouted them, or, oh, wow, they tried this for the first time during that game. Is there anything that stood out to you that way that you can use as, as an example of their X's and O's just dominating the Clippers? No, I think it's the same thing. I think, I think one thing that fits into this subtle category is the way they use pace, right? So the Clippers score or the Clippers miss, it doesn't matter. And if the Clippers turn it over, forget it. That was like a huge difference in the game. The Clippers actually had the highest true shooting percentage of any team in a loss in NBA history. Now, Cody, I'm going to blow your mind again. Everyone, uh, everyone listening at home can play along. What do you think the Clippers' true shooting percentage as a team was in this game? League-wide true shooting percentage is about 57% or so this season. The Clippers, the whole team, what was their true shooting percentage in this game? 
All right. So it has to be a high number, right? It's a high number because it's it's the highest ever in a loss. Let's say like 72% true shooting. I think that's a great guess. The first person I asked this said 68%. The correct answer is the Clippers true shooting in this game was 77%. No team so, has ever shot that well and lost because they, they turned it over a lot. 20% relative true shooting. Yes, as a team. Yes, yes. So the turnovers lead to easy offense, uh, misses, the Kings push it, makes the Kings push it, and Malik Monk, I mean, this was a fire and ice kind of thing because we've talked about the Clippers being slow-footed. They were trotting out a new player in Eric Gordon. Russell Westbrook has some defensive warts. Marcus Morris Sr. is a little bit like a turnstile at this point up on the perimeter. And Sacramento attacked that, and they attacked the fact that, like, if you, I feel like if you had a foot race, if you had a relay race between the Kings' top eight players and the Clippers' top eight players, I think they might lap them out on an Olympic track. Like, that's the difference in speed we're talking about. And so it's another small thing because pace... In transition, the exchange of one possession to another compounds, the speed of that compounds all these things. So it's like, all right, you're running back on defense and you're Marcus Morris and you switched onto Kawhi Leonard's man because there's some cross matching and some rotations when you had the ball and you're just running back and you're like, okay, I'm going to guard, I'm going to guard Harrison Barnes now because he's near me. And then you're like, oh, I got to tell Kawhi that he needs to switch on the guy who I used to be guarding who's who's Kevin Herter, who's on the opposite side of the floor. And then you're like, Kawhi, go guard Kevin Herter. And Kawhi's like, what? And you're like, go guard Kevin Herter. Cody, by the time this conversation is over, the three-pointer is in the bucket. <laughs> it, takes the, it takes the Kings about three seconds. So it's the same thing they've been doing. Movement, optionality, dribble handoffs, Sabonis, space the court, uh, all kinds of counters and and just constant shooters and DHO action, dribble handoff action, and then also playing at pace like that and just pressuring you and being precise and sort of pinpoint with their execution. Uh, it, it it was glorious. It was absolutely glorious. So I'm I'm going to step away from this game for just for a second. Don't worry, I'm coming right back to it. Please. But what, one of your takeaways that you talked about is the shot quality on every possession. And I say this because another game this weekend, right? They're, the first possession of the game really stood out to me, the Celtics and 76ers game. Because the very first possession for the Celtics, a very good high-octane offense, it seemed like they set it up so that Marcus Smart would get a post up against James Harden. And as I was watching this possession, where that's literally what the play is designed to do, he gets the post up, and then he takes a fadeaway over him, a solid post defender in Harden. And I'm like... I haven't seen a play design like this in ever to start a game. Like, this feels very, like, 2005 Flip Saunders is like, I need to get Ben Wallace inspired, so he needs to get a post-up. Or, like, 2010 Thunder, where it's like, oh, we need to get... No, Kendrick Perkins was the Celtics at that point. But the Cel- wherever Kendrick Perkins played, being like, we need to start the game with Kendrick Perkins getting a post-up so that he'll be, you know, he'll be our, our main guy the rest of the game. Yeah, you don't see... That's, that's, that's a great point. You just don't see that in today's game anymore. You... If you go back and you watch one of these games 20 years ago, a ton of the offenses run through the post, both to score and in then some instances, you know, you're creating through the post. You're throwing it into the post and you're like, oh, maybe I could get a double team and kick it out to the guy on my near side for a three. <laughs> That'll show them. <laughs> this is amazing offense. And today you just don't see that. The Celtics do occasionally look to 
get Marcus Smart a mismatch. I think a lot of teams around the league look for bigger physical guards that they can get in space. They can get a duck in or a seal near the basket. In this particular case, it's a little strange because James Harden is built like a tank. Is basically bigger than Marcus Smart. I don't know if he's. I don't know if any human is stronger than Marcus Smart. I guess Grant Williams. Grant Williams ripped through his shoe just jogging in the, in the preseason. <laughs> um, but you know what I'm saying. It's a it's a strange idea. Anyway, what were we talking about? Yeah. So going back then to the to the Kings game, what what I found interesting, and you talked about the the defense from from the Kings. It's weird to even talk about defense in this game, but I actually thought there were some high level defense times going on. Like yeah. Kawhi, first of all, I thought Kawhi looked locked. There were a couple like rim deterrence plays where he goes straight up with both hands and forces a kick out. He had a clutch block, I think, in either overtime or double. Oh, you're excited about this. So just like peak Kawhi Leonard block. When was that in the game? It was in uh, double overtime, comes over on the baseline. Didn't look like he got that high. I guess he never does. Uh, yeah. Although I think his vert used to be better when he was younger. But amazing block kind of save at the rim from the weak side, then comes down in transition, gets it on the wing, throws a redonkulous one-handed bounce pass through two players on the wing. The play ended up fizzling out. But uh, yeah, Kawhi was was nuts in this game. And that's the thing. There were a lot of high-level defensive plays throughout the game. There were some high-level defensive tactics in the game. And it's like, Nah, the players are just so good now that great offense beats great defense, both at the individual level. I feel like when we were growing up in the old days, it was like, you know, you could play great defense on Michael Jordan and you could put your hand in his face, but great offense beats great defense. But this is at the team level, right? This is like, well, we're switching. There's a there's a play in the video, I'm just going to give it away, where the where the Kings triple switch. The Kings triple switch. That's a very mm. advanced tactic. Um, it's kind of like, uh, you know, one guy peels off and goes to the corner. The other guy leaves his man in the corner and goes to the paint to get the big man to prevent the mismatch. And so this Clippers spread pick and roll goes nowhere. And then um, uh, the center, Nick Batum, relocates from under the basket to the corner and hits a fadeaway three. It's There's nothing you could do about that. No. No. They A, B, Kawhi Leonard at one point in the second half, somewhere in the fourth quarter, was shooting nine for nine from the field, just unconscious. Before this, in, in the last month prior to that game, he was shooting 49% on his three-point attempts. 49% in the last month. Kawhi is, I I don't know what things I said about Kawhi in past episodes, but I'm, I'm pretty close to taking every single one of them back just because of this one game. Uh, but going to the to the Kings side. Wait, wait, wait. On Kawhi, I want to stick on Kawhi for a second. Okay. Uh, don't forget your Kings thing. Write it. Write it down. Put a pin I got, in it. I got it written down. Okay. With Kawhi, I, I assume you're referring to his continual improvement coming back from the ACL. Are, are you in a headspace now where you think he's a top ten player again? Because I was thinking about this, watching this game where he goes berserk, by the way. I think Kawhi Leonard, it's like the opposite of some of the other scoring games this season. Kawhi Leonard's game against this the Kings the other night, he had 44 points. They were more impressive than maybe 44 points from anyone else in the league. Like, he took six free throws. The rest were just hard shots. He had 38 points on ridiculous shots. I, I'm not sure... I'm not sure... I'm really struggling to think of an easy shot that he had, which in and of itself isn't a great thing, but also made the performance just crazy to watch. So this is this was going to be my point. 
because I was, as one does, I was watching some some Jokic game from yesterday. I was watching the Nuggets, and I was like, this guy's just so good at scoring because he just, like, rotates himself until he's at the basket. None of it looks impressive, but it's still just, like, an unstoppable scoring package. Whereas Kawhi, where I'm watching this game, I'm like, when's the last time he touched the paint? And not, like, touching it to, like, springboard backwards and take a shot. But when's the last time he, like, tried to dribble and, like, dribble by someone and finish? Not in transition. Not on a post-up where he hits his hook shot once in a while. And I think that's the thing that makes me a little bit nervous. Because, yeah, his tough shot making is great. But uh, who'd the Clippers play yesterday? They played the Nuggets yesterday. The first quarter, he misses his first, like, four or five shots. They all kind of rim out. And I'm like, well, this is what's going to happen when you go to the mid-range here. And so, yeah, Kawhi's passing looks solid. His defense, when it's ramped up, he looks fantastic. Those hands are still incredible. He's still able to meet people at the rim. But the fact that he's just not generating easy shots, I, that, that matters to me. And I don't know what to do with that quite yet. It's, it's too early for me to have a rant about this because no one has really gotten on the, on the Kawhi train yet. But as nice as I think his man defense has looked, Kawhi's weakness defensively has always been off the ball. Hmm. And both against the Nuggets although I haven't seen that whole game yet, so maybe not as prevalent against the Nuggets, but certainly against the Kings. You had possessions where some of these subtle little things off the ball make a relatively large difference when you compare it to the kind of off-ball kind of defenders that have that great strength, that Draymond Green, high IQ, uh, quote-unquote high basketball IQ awareness of these plays. And it's just something floating around in the back of my head because it's like when Pete Kawhi played, teams didn't run offenses like this. And so I'm watching the game yesterday and uh, I forget if it was, did ESPN have that game? I forget who was calling that game. I Wh- honestly don't remember. Whoever was calling that game said something like, you know, just run your offense away from Kawhi Leonard. And I'm thinking, yeah, but it's not, it's not 1998. Like you're not going to isolate against Kawhi Leonard, you're going to make him like run around a bunch of screens, but oh, 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 wait. Oh, so the Clippers actually, they don't want him running around a bunch of screens, so they just switch everything. But I feel like there are more counters to that and more activity around that. And that's what you saw in the Kings game. The Kings have these actions where the Clippers are switching and in theory, it's supposed to diffuse the action and they just keep going with more. There's a counter to that counter now. And so you have to really be aware and you have to really be mindful of everything that's happening. And, um, you know, that's, we've talked about this before, so we don't have to, we don't have to circle these wagons, but that's why I'm just still not clear on, you know, are the Clippers like an okay defensive team? Can they be a good playoff defensive team? Because these things compound when you don't have a lot of size, you don't have a lot of rim protection. And it's like, yeah, Kawhi has had some awesome on-ball possessions, which make me really happy because it's an indicator that he's coming back and the health is there. But this this isn't not the same league it was five years ago. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
And going back just a second to talk about a scoring number. So in this last month, in Kawhi's last 10 games, his rim frequency is just a shade under 15%. So 15% of his shots are at the rim. And he's only shooting, according to PVP stats, play-by-play stats, he's only shooting about 52% at the rim during this time, Hmm. right? So for somebody that's as on fire as he is, he's basically shooting as well from the three-point line as he is at the rim. Okay, so I guess that's one of those things where like my eyes aren't necessarily lying to me. So, you know, just to put a pin in that conversation, that's what gives me pause a little bit with Kawhi. And going to what you were just saying about defense, you referenced Morris kind of being a turnstile. And I think we we had like the beginnings of a conversation about this yesterday when we I think you mentioned something about Morris being a defensive turnstile. And my response is. What are they going to do about their small ball lineup? Like, can they do a small ball lineup that doesn't have Morris in it? Because the the point is, you like you have to have Batum playing the five, then Morris is the four, and then you have Paul George, you have Kawhi, and then Norman Powell, maybe Reggie Jackson. I don't think West, Russell Westbrook can hold up defensively super well in that lineup unless you're just going like full all out. We're attacking berserker mode on offense. I, I don't know. Can there? Do you think that their small ball lineup that we saw? in the playoffs a couple of years ago against like the Utah Jazz, is that still a viable option for them? Well, we did a whole podcast about this. So I'll, I'll just say on this one, how many Utah Jazzes are out there to exploit? That's, hmm. that's the question for me. Um, they didn't have Zubats in the game the other night. I think there are times he's been huge, so we'll see what happens. But obviously a traditional drop big like that presents his own potential weaknesses to attack on the other side of the court. You have a king's thought to get to. I'm realizing you talk about the craziness of basketball in the last few days since we've come back from the All-Star break. We 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 just glossed over the Celtics and the 76ers. The 76ers, it feels like they can never beat the Celtics. They were ahead in that game for like a ton of the game. Um, At the end of the game, it's tied. And they run the same play they ran at the beginning of the year that we covered for smartest plays against the Cavs, Tatum in the backcourt, get him coming downhill with a head of steam. This time, subtle difference, The I might have been Embiid. I would have to rewatch the play. It might have been Embiid. Someone for Philadelphia realized what was happening and rotated over early, which is a little bit different than the setup of the Cleveland play. Also, the Cleveland play, I believe, was truly after a timeout. This was, they got the ball, they ran something, it went out of bounds, they called it in from the sideline or something. So the difference here is that as Tatum's coming downhill, he reads that extra Philadelphia defender, who I think might have been Embiid, in front of him, slams on the brakes, jimmies up a pull-up three to take the game with one second left, 197, I think, was the score in that one. I don't know. The scoreboard must have broke. It didn't get over 100. Um, (laughs) Then they throw it into Embiid, and Embiid hits a 75-footer at the buzzer (laughs) to tie the game at 100. But he didn't get it off in time by like two-tenths of a second. I mean, it's like an afterthought from the NBA this week. Embiid reminds me of Sisyphus, Ben. Like, he toils away. He always finishes in second. He releases the full court shot right at the end. We just have to imagine him happy pushing up that boulder, man. Like, that's at a certain point, like, Embiid's great. 
he's fantastic. He's going to finish in the top five MVP, but he just lives in a world with, with yet. It reminds me of like Durant when, when LeBron was at his peak in the early 2010s. It's, it's got to be frustrating for him, but he's also one of the best players in the NBA. I don't want to dwell on that too much. Something I found interesting about that. You want to say something? Well, yeah. Jeff, was Jeff, it because Paul George, the, the two nights later or the next night or the same, the same, not wait, yesterday it was the same day. Paul George hit a buzzer beater at the half court at the half court. It's clearly time to end the show. I can't put sentences together. That was at the end of the Nuggets game, right? Paul George hit a half court shot from like 60 feet. You've already forgotten this. I didn't didn't watch the whole game. At the end of the game, at the end of the game, the game was tied. The Nuggets had for them what was a terrible clutch set. At the end of clutch games, the Nuggets usually torture you. The Nuggets win all their close games. We knew that was going to happen. He throws it over to Bruce Brown. Bruce Brown misses the three. And Paul George hits a 60-footer to win the game, but it was like three-tenths of a second after the buzzer on the same day. Ben, I didn't know this happened. <laughs> yeah. This is, this, this is news to me. That's Cody, incredible. this is this is why you listen to this show. <laughs> this is why I tune in every week. I learn something about the games that I'm talking about. Now, some, like schematically, like because we're talking about the high levels of offense. What I found really interesting about the Boston-Philadelphia game is that Boston seemed to find a set, seemed to find an action that just, that bamboozled the Sixers and they went back to it quite a bit. Like, they, Boston loves to run, like, these three-man actions that can kind of flow in and out of a bunch of different sorts of things. And one of these things that they did to torture Embiid quite a bit is what's called a Spain pick and roll, right? Like, you have the screener come up and then you have a third person show up and they screen the screener's man, Right. Ben, I don't know how many times I flagged this during this game where Derek White or Malcolm Brogdon or Jason Tatum is then able to dribble into space while the Sixers are just like throwing their hands up like someone cover someone, get into space, do something. And then they slithered in for a layup or a foul or something like that. And when I'm watching this, I'm like, Embiid is a fantastic defender and they're just going at him with this one play over and over and I, it ties back, and it wasn't as high scoring as the Kings Clippers game, but it's still one of those things that's like, man, how good of a defender do you need to be to anchor a defense in this league right now? Yeah, no, you you you, you can't do it by yourself. I mean, defense has always been a team thing, but you you can't do it by yourself. You also you defense. I think I did an episode a couple of years ago, which was a really fun one to revisit. A lot of research went into that on defenses without great shot blockers and like how good can they be and the big takeaway is and i think it applies here cody your coach and your system and your buy-in from your teammates is going to be more valuable than your best defender every time like if your best if your best defender is a difference between like the 10th and the first best defense by himself or the 20th and the seventh best defense by himself the rest of your team and your coaching and your scheme and your buy-in on defending together as a unit, that's going to be the difference between like seventh and first by a mile or 15th and 26th or whatever it is. And I think we've seen that in the playoffs where you can have a great defender and if you attack weak spots elsewhere, one guy can't can't cover the whole court now. You had you had one more King's thought, I think, and then and then we got to get out of here. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to boil it down. I, this whole time, I was like, man, how am I going to slip this back in? I was going to boil it down to one thing. Keegan Murray. I thought he was fantastic. And you talked about like the defensive plays that they were playing at the end. I think it was in the last like three minutes, maybe the last two and a half minutes, the Kings had two straight pick sixes. One of them, I think, was De'Aaron Fox. 
Maybe he picked it someone's pocket and brought it down for a layup. But then Keegan Murray jumps the passing lane and gets it. And for a rookie, man, Keegan Murray playing big minutes like that, getting big defensive plays. Man, I, I love that guy. This is, this is why I value. This is why I value the sort of hurricane level defender. This is why I'm on Thibault's corner when it comes to this. Because it, if you can steal out the most efficient shot while also ending the other team's chance to score, that's just wildly valuable to your team. And Keegan Murray was awesome. We're going to get in so much trouble for making it through this whole podcast <laughs> and not talking about Malik Monk and De'Aaron Fox. Malik Monk was Malik Monk. a machine. Malik Monk tortured Eric Gordon into oblivion in that game. Um, and he's he's cold-blooded, absolutely cold-blooded. He's a guy who can take big shots, make big shots. I think that will come back around in a playoff series at one point in one game. You could have a Malik Monk moment like that. Darren Fox has had like how many straight 30, like nine straight 30-point games. He's on a heater. He hit some big clutch jumpers in this game. Um those two guys have been a lot of fun, and it's going to be really interesting to see the Kings in a playoff series. We One, we know it's going to be super fun. At two, we know the environment in Sacramento is going to be spectacular. I'm not going to miss any of those games. But three, everything we've talked about, if Fox is playing like this, I'm going to have to go back and revisit my dear and Fox because he's he, now he's playing like an all-star to me. Like, there's no conversation. He's been fantastic. And if you've got him, you've got Monk, you've got Sabonis. Sabonis had five fouls in this game early in the third quarter. This this was an all-time game. This was an absolute all-time game. Um, yeah, it's going to be really fun to see what happens with Sacramento come playoff time. I, I sort of have to rethink Sacramento because they were, when we were doing our like, I don't even remember when, we were trying to power rank the the best teams in the NBA or whatever else. And we kind of left the Kings as an afterthought, but they just like, I kind of thought their offense would fizzle out at some point, Ben. I really did. I wasn't quite as much of a believer as guys like you and Mike. You and Mike were on the Kings train from the beginning. I was quietly a little bit more skeptical, but they just keep trucking out these months with 120 offensive rating, 122 offensive rating. And that is going to be a scary team to play in the playoffs. If you want to support this show, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. That is the best way to support this podcast. We also have our daily stats leaderboard. We just had a really cool, fun update on team stats. We get a bunch of team stats. We talked about last month's statistics. Uh, we have stats against the best teams in the league, the worst teams in the league, so you can see who the bottom feeders are. I'm not saying the Clippers are the premier example of that. They may be patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Hope you enjoyed this one. Hope you enjoyed just a ridiculous weekend of basketball as we head into the stretch run after the all-star break. Kevin Durant's making his debut this week. uh, So we have a lot more to talk about later in the week. That'll be a lot of fun. As always, thanks for listening all the way through. And of course, I do hope you're having a great day. 